let's get on to Genesis chapter 41. Um, by way of introduction, I'm going to tell you that I am, am planning right now on doing kind of a Genesis 1 and 2 kind of thing. You know, Genesis 1 is kind of an overview of creation. Genesis 2 comes back and gives more detail about basically how that happened. And that's probably what's going to happen with chapter 41 today. There is so much in chapter 41, there's no way I'm going to mine out all of the exegetical and theological gold, as it were. And so I just want you to know I am reserving the right to come make a return trip for mining purposes later. Probably will be the next time I'm preaching out of this. Okay. <clears throat> I am excited as can be to preach this chapter of Genesis, however, because it's really something of a synopsis of the gospel. In chapter 41, we begin to really see the theme of God as our rescuer fully developed. We see it in the life of Joseph, of course, but we also see how God is, through Joseph, acting as the rescuer of his people as well. So it's perfect timing. It's perfect timing if you're getting your house ready for Christmas and talk about the incarnation of the rescuer. So the thematic coincidence is anything but coincidence. And I'm excited to proclaim that to you today. So chapter 41 is, I will warn you, a very long chapter, 57 verses. We should get out of here before two. But you're really going to be I, I feel like I need to set the stage beforehand. There's a, a large portion of exegesis that just comes right after verse 1. I'm not going to spend as much time on every subsequent verse. Fear not. But you're going to see that this, this narrative, this piece of narrative, does read at a fairly rapid clip. And it's more or less self-explanatory. So because of that, I, I feel like we won't have a problem getting through at least this first go through of the chapter. So, last time I preached, we covered chapter 40, and I gave you a rundown of the timeline of Joseph's life at this point. Remember, he was sold by his brothers when he was 17. At the time that he was elevated, that would be this chapter, 41, he was 30 years old. Now, if you do the time, you're going to see that he has been in Egypt at this point for 13 years. And he was in prison for at least two years before his promotion. And then the scripture says that the butler and the baker, or the cup bearer and the baker, were with him in prison for quite some time. How long was Joseph in prison? We don't know exactly. But we can surmise it was quite a while. Much longer than just two years. Why? At least 11 years. He was in slavery or in prison. For 13 years. After having these dreams that God shows him, hey, <clears throat> I'm going to exalt you to a place of rule and influence and power. And he comes out like any good cocksure 17-year-old that knows everything and tells everybody, right? He gloats about it, more or less. And he's then, of course, captured and sold into slavery. We see that God told him what would happen in the end. They may have skipped some of the details in the middle. <laughs> the meantime. So sometime after Joseph was falsely accused of attempted rape and thrown into the dungeon that was in Potiphar's basement, 
Pharaoh's cupbearer and head baker were thrown in, him, in there with him as well. And the question is, what for? Well, the Bible simply says it this way. It says, The cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, so he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and Joseph attended to them. Here's the piece. And they continued for some time in custody. How long was that? We don't know. It also doesn't tell us exactly what they did. I told you last time from the context clues, it's possible for us to deduce it was most likely a poisoning plot against the Pharaoh, which would not have been uncommon. So even though these two men were probably there on suspicion of murder, they were really there. Because God was bringing them to meet Joseph. The Lord was still with Joseph, even when he couldn't feel it, he couldn't hear it, he couldn't perceive it. The Lord was still with him. And I told you, Christian, that holds true for you. The Lord is still with you. Your senses may fail you. You may not be able to perceive that. You may not be able to feel that. You may not feel the palpability, if you will, of his touch. But the Lord is still with you. How can I know that? Because I have a more sure word than your senses. And that is God's word. His plan for your life has never wavered. It's never been in doubt. He is not on plan B, C, D, E, trying to rescue and save and pick up the pieces, the mess that you've made. No, God has a plan for your life and that has never been derailed because he has never surrendered his sovereignty just because of your stupidity. And I'm going to tell you something, at least for a guy like me, that is a really reassuring fact. He is still willing and working in you to do to his good pleasure. Even when you think you've screwed it all up, even in the dungeon, God is still with you. The psalmist said, even if I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. He's not left you. He's not forsaken you. He's still at work. One morning, the cupbearer and the butler awake after both having mysterious dreams. They both awaken perplexed because they know the dreams mean something. These aren't just any dreams. I know this dream means something. But they don't know what the dream means. I know it means something, but what could it mean? Joseph realizes something is troubling them, and so he asks them about it. And I told you last time, that shows us something about his character. Joseph, who has been maligned, Joseph, who has been done wrong, is not concerned about his own comfort and the, the poor circumstances that he's in. He's concerned for these two men who are there, by the way, because at least one of them is guilty. And here this man who's been mistreated and mistreated and mistreated and falsely accused and hated without reason is not sitting around pouting and sulking and having a pity party. He's actually concerned about the well-being of others there. And in fact, that concern is part of what forwards this peace, this purpose that God is molding him for. Joseph has learned to be concerned for others. He was not so much that way at 17. So what are we seeing? The refiner's fire is working in Joseph's life. 
He comes up and says to the cupbearer, you know, what are you troubled for? Well, I had this dream. Well, tell me the dream. Well, I don't know what it means. Now tell me the dream. Right? Both men tell Joseph their dreams. Joseph tells them what the dreams mean. He also tells them that interpretations belong to God. It's very interesting. In other words, he's not taking glory or credit for the skill that he has. Did you catch that? You know what we like to do? Boy, that was a great sermon. Yeah, I'm a pretty good preacher. Don't we like to take credit for a skill that the Lord has developed in us, that the Lord has given us? And Joseph here is showing a humility that he did not have in earlier chapters. You can interpret my dream. Well, actually, interpretations belong to God. But he shares with me. I can tell you what he says. That's a humility he lacked before. By the way, if you would like a character trait that qualifies you for service in God's kingdom, there it is. The character trait that we absolutely despise in American culture, which is humility. So he tells them, here's the dreams. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. He says, in three days, here's what's going to happen. You, Mr. Cupbearer, you're going to be restored. You're going to put the cup back in Pharaoh's hand. You're coming back to your place of prominence. Of course, the baker's like, man, that's awesome. What does mine mean? Hey, your head's going to be lifted up too off of your neck. Right? Right? You're going you're gonna to die in three days. Not probably what he was looking for. And then Joseph looks at the cupbearer and says, Listen, I am not here because of anything I have done. I've been falsely accused. I've done nothing wrong. When you get out, when the Lord delivers you out, just like I've told you, when you are restored to your place, remember me and tell Pharaoh where I'm at, that I'm here, and get me out of this place. And that's just what happens, right? <laughs> well, not, not exactly. Chapter 40 actually ends on something of an incredibly sad note because it says simply, the last verse of the whole chapter, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. And we are tempted to think, well, that is only because that cupbearer was such a you know, moronic man. That cupbearer was such a bad guy. And I'm here to tell you today... That it may be true that that cup bearer had a character flaw and fault here. But the overarching reason was because God hid it from his mind. It was God's plan for Joseph to be forgotten for those two years. We don't like that part of the story. We don't like that because two things. Number one, it shows God is actually sovereign, not us. And number two, we don't like to think... That God's plan for us might be to actually languish in irrelevance. Right? Well, God, you should make something big of me. (laughs) Really, should he? No. God had a very good reason for keeping Joseph there. God had a very good reason for that cupbearer forgetting. Because in two years, he's going to send Pharaoh a dream. Think about what would have happened... If the cupbearer would have remembered, he says something to Pharaoh. Pharaoh lets Joseph go. Where's Joseph going? 
He's going home. He's not staying in Egypt, which he calls later the land of his affliction. You think he's going to stay in Egypt? He's going home. Well, then what happens when Pharaoh has the dream? Man, there was this Hebrew guy one time. Where's he at? Uh, We don't know. Matthew Henry says this. If the chief butler would have remembered Joseph here and gotten him released from prison, it's quite probable that Joseph would have gone back to the land of the Hebrews. And then he would not have later had the opportunity to be blessed himself nor prove to be such a blessing to his family and the people of God. What an insight. Why does God keep Joseph here? It's part of the plan. Because you may not see it, but there's one who's higher than you. And his ways are not your ways. And he's still at work whether you realize it or not. God's plan requires Joseph to stay put in that prison, in that pit, for two years. But God does not have him staying in that prison by himself. No, the Lord is with him. Just like he's with you. The cupbearer does eventually tell Pharaoh about Joseph, but it's not on Joseph's timeline. Lord, there's no reason for me to be here for another two years. Yes, there is. And actually, other places in the Scripture tell us that there was actually things going on in that time. Psalm 105 tells us explicitly, which we'll get into later, that until it came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. What's really in there? But before we get into all of that, before I get ahead of myself, let's pray. Lord, we pray you'd show us great things from your word today. God, I ask you'd use me as a mouthpiece today to edify and encourage your people through the truth of your word. Let my preaching and teaching be accurate to your word and to your spirit. Speak through your word today, Lord, for the building up of your people and the advancement of your kingdom. Transform us and renew us by the power of your word. And may all that's said and done today bring honor and glory to you and you alone. Because, Lord, you alone are worthy of it. It's in Jesus' holy name that we ask. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Turn with me. Chapter 41. Let's start digging. Chapter 41. Genesis 41. Starting at verse 1. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. Now listen, don't, don't miss that part. He's standing by the Nile. There's, there's a part in here that I had never thought about. I grew up on a farm in western Kansas. Doesn't rain too much in western Kansas. But we are dependent on the rain. But in, for, for crops obviously. But in, in Egypt, it was not the rain they were depending on. What was it? Well, it was the Nile River. It was the overflowing of the Nile. They needed the water of the Nile to produce crops. So it makes sense when God gives Pharaoh this dream, Pharaoh is standing in the Nile. Because that's, in in essence, the source from which the crops, the grain, is going to come. He's standing by the Nile. Now listen, remember, at this point, Joseph was in prison. He's been forgotten by Pharaoh's butler for two full years. And we can assume there was difficulty and discouragement in those years. And the reason we can is because, well, Psalm 105 says it explicitly. If you want to look at Psalm 105 with me, if I had the time, I'd love to just expose an entire piece of this because there's a part of this passage that every good word of faith person likes to quote. Right? Yeah. Don't you touch my anointed, nor do my prophets any harm. 
which was not about a preacher. It was about his people, Israel. By the way, that's you, in case you're wondering. He was saying to the pagan nations, these are my people. Don't touch them. That has never changed. If you believe in Christ, you are his people. And he is still watching over you and says to the pagans around you, don't touch them. They're the apple of my eye. Anyway, I'm not going to get all that. Let's go to 16. Verse 16, when he, that is talking about God, when he summoned a famine on the land, stop, full stop, who summoned the famine on the land? That's the work of the devil. All them people's going to starve. That's the work of the, who summoned that famine? Uh, God did. Well, I don't believe that about God. Well, that's fine. You can make a God in your own image. But the scripture says God summoned that famine. And he broke all the supply of bread. But he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put into a collar of iron. Until what God had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The word of the Lord tested him. Question. Do you realize that God will, in fact, test you? Do you think when you decide to follow Jesus, everything's going to be hunky-dory and roses? God, in essence, shows Joseph a dream that Joseph would one day rule. He gives Joseph his word. Okay, that's how he gave him his word. And the question becomes, will Joseph trust God to perform his word even when it looks to be impossible? Because until that thing that God has promised Joseph comes to pass, that word is testing Joseph. Will you believe this or not? And that, by the way, that is a theme that we see all the way through the book of Genesis. God gives an incredible promise to Abraham and then waits. In, In our mind, he waits far too long to fulfill it. Why would he do that? He is testing Abraham. Will you believe me or not? Will you believe me when everyone else in the culture says it's impossible or not? Will you believe his word when your life experience says otherwise? Do you think any of Abraham's friends were having children years and years after their wife had already gone through menopause? No. Do you think Mary knew anybody else? That had become pregnant as a virgin. Now, listen, I, I teach high school kids, okay, as, as a, you know, Monday through Friday as a job. I know there are people who claim to have become pregnant that way, but that is not actually the truth. <laughs> I like to say, last time that happened, there was a star in the east. Check the sky. Didn't see it. I'm sorry. Will you trust God's word, or will you resort? To thinking things through like the culture. Will you resort to your own experience? Will you resort to your own logic? Or will you trust God's word? Is he in fact able to perform his word or not? By the way, that's why we say it this way. We do not test God's word. God's word tests us. James 1.12 tells us, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, then he will receive the crown of life. When he has stood the test, 
He stood a test. Catch that? Which God has promised to those who love him. Proverbs 17.3 says, The crucibles for silver, the furnaces for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Now for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. Why? Well, it goes on to tell us, So that the genuineness of your faith can be found. Why would God test me? Because he's going to find out whether your faith is genuine or not. By the way, it's not that he doesn't know. He knows. But the sad nature of reality is sometimes we don't know. It's very easy for us to think we're more mature, we're better off, we're farther along the process than we really are. And it's the refiner's fire that reveals what's really in there. When you promised God that you loved him and you'd serve him come what may, did you really mean it? Or did you actually mean that you'd serve him just so long as everything was hunky-dory and the sun was shining down on you? Because the furnace of affliction is going to show what's really inside. Isaiah 48.10 says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. When the trial comes, it is there to refine us. It does a lot of things. One of the things it does is reveals to us who we really are. God knows who we really are. God knows how well-developed we really are. But sometimes we don't know. And it's a good reminder. It's often a very humbling time, isn't it? It is for me. See, it's in the furnace of affliction that God tries us and tests us and shows us what's really in there. Like a refiner trying gold or silver. It's the heat of the furnace that reveals what this metal really is made of. Is it really gold? Or is there still some dross in there? It's just hard to see because it's cooled down enough. Is this really pure gold? Well, one real easy way to find out is let's heat it up. Let's get in a furnace and put it in a crucible. Get it a few thousand degrees and see what comes to the top. You think you're a well-put-together, mature Christian? Let me watch how you respond to the furnace of affliction. How do you respond when God isn't doing what you want Him to do? How do you respond when you're under stress and pressure? How do you respond when God leaves you in the wilderness of irrelevance? How do you respond when God doesn't promote you? How do you respond when people don't care what you think or have to say? How do you respond when God leaves you, as it were, in the pit? Will gold come up to the top when it's heated or will dross? Will you continue to serve him faithfully even through that? Or are you going to pout and sulk and feel sorry for yourself? And by the way, when you pout and sulk and feel sorry for yourself, that is revealing that you have an entitled mentality. You think God owes it to you to make something big of you. God is not under duress and God is not forced. You do not deserve for God to make a big deal out of you. Do you understand that? I mean, I know you probably understand that. But you don't. No, instead, God deserves for you to make a big deal out of him. There is one and one alone who deserves it. And his name is Jesus Christ. Paul Wilson does not, and neither does any other fallible man or woman. 
until what God said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. One great pastor said it this way, present yourself to the Lord as a servant and don't get angry if he treats you like one. (laughs) We can draw a lot of lessons from that. Number one, sometimes the good that we do for others seems to go unrewarded. Look at Joseph. He has not done any wrong to his brothers who then mistreat him and talk about killing him and eventually sell him into slavery because, well, that's a better way to make money than just killing the man. He serves faithfully in the house of Potiphar. And what does he get for it? He gets Potiphar's lying wife falsely accusing him and thrown into the pit. That's what he gets for it. Are his good deeds going unrewarded? Yeah, even worse than going unrewarded. He's being rewarded evil for good. And it might be, it might be tempting for him to think, The Lord doesn't see this. God, don't you see this? Yes, the Lord sees it. Here's the good news for you. God doesn't let those things go unrewarded. Your good deeds did not go unseen. They might have gone unseen by human eyes, but it doesn't matter if human eyes see them. It matters whether the Lord sees this. Hebrews 11.6 tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God because he, comes, he who comes to God must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Yes, he does reward. He's always certain to reward those unseen good deeds. Here's another good uh, lesson that we learn from this passage. Waiting is a very common theme in the Christian life. It's usually the theme that we hate the most. God appoints us to wait much longer than we would like. God, I'm ready for whatever it is. God says, you're not even close. (laughs) But you will be, son, in about a decade. I'm going to put you through some trials, some refiner's fire. We're going to see what's really in there, and we're going to chip away at this thing. And I'm going to form the image of my son in you. Listen, there's probably no great piece of rock that would think it was wonderful to have parts chipped away. Just like we feel the same way. But you don't get the image of Christ without it. God is sovereign over the timing of our lives, not us. And that's also tough for us. We live in a culture that's very pragmatic. And because of that, we live in a culture that screams to us, well, if you want to do something, if you want to make something of yourself, you've got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just do it. Force your will on all the universe. Manifest your destiny. Just speak it out. I have a close friend um, that we were very, very close years past, that um, has is been caught up in the word of faith nonsense for two decades now and has a son that will probably pass away, a very young son, I think 12, that will probably pass away from cancer within the next month. And one night at like 2 in the morning, I got this long text message. Why would God do this? I'm confessing and standing and 
We don't let people speak this stuff. It's still happening. And I was very gently trying to send back, well, your words don't have the power to raise up that son. You don't have that power. And if you think you have that power, God will let you see otherwise. God is the one alone who holds the keys of life and death. Your great health is not because you said the right words this morning when you got up. If you are healthy, it's because the Lord has had great mercy on you. So I had to have this conversation about Jesus told his disciples, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move this mountain. What he was saying was, it's not how much faith you have, It's where that faith is placed. What is the object of that faith? If the object of that faith is Jesus Christ, you can have the tiniest, teeniest little bit of faith, and it will move mountains. Not because you have the ability to move mountains. You do not. Jesus Christ, however, does. God is sovereign over your life and over the timing of your life. And I know that may seem very offensive to you. But it should be comforting to you. If you're a Christian, if you actually are a Christian, that should be of great comfort to you. All right, I know this is going to sound petty, but I don't care. When I was younger, by golly, I was ready to meet my wife. I'm 21 or 22. God, I'm ready to be married. Do you know how much longer it was before I met my wife? Ah, just a couple of nights. Eight years, people. I was certain I am ready. About six months after getting married, I thought, holy smokes, if we would have met five years ago, she would have shot me. The Lord knows what he's doing. (laughs) Honestly, there's still times where I wonder. (laughs) Glad she doesn't have a proclivity for violence. Sometimes we're not as ready as we think we are. And God knows the truth. So can I suggest something to you, my friend? Is it possible that like Joseph, maybe you're right where you need to be at this stage of your life? Maybe the Lord really is working. Is it possible that God is still working in you, ironing out some of those character flaws? Is it possible that he's still working on you in the crucible? Is it possible... Your character is still under refinement? Is it possible that if God promoted you the way you think you should be promoted, that your heart would be full of arrogance and pride? That had to come out of Joseph. Is it possible that God hasn't moved you into that season or promoted you yet because, in honesty, you actually aren't ready for it yet? I know it hurts to hear that, but is it possible? going to be true maybe god still has you in the furnace because he's refining you and he's pulling off the dross he's refining you into gold and that furnace is hot and uncomfortable i'm sure you probably <coughs> you've heard the story of how gold was refined in that time get it really really hot and you start pulling off the other metals gold typically is not pure when it comes out there's other metals that are in it nickel and tin even silver things like that So you put it in the crucible, you heat it up, and you get it hot enough, the other metals will come to the top. Gold is very, very dense. If you ever look up on the periodic table, you'll know it's very low in the periodic table. 
It's a very dense metal. It will settle to the bottom. The other metals will come, will float up on top, and so then they have to be skimmed off. That dross, that waste material has to be skimmed off. How does the refiner know this gold is pure? He can look down in it and see the reflection of his own face. If I can see my reflection now, it's pure. You'd like to know what the last metal to come out of gold when you're smelting it is? It's silver. Silver's precious, but it's not gold. The furnace is hot and uncomfortable, but it is unparalleled in its character refinement. And maybe the Lord is pulling off dross so that he can see his face in you. Let's go on read about these dreams that God gave to Pharaoh. Verse 2, Behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And these ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And then Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep again and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. Behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind, and the thin ears swallowed up the plump. The thin ears followed up, swallowed up the plump, full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. I, I love the irony here. Because Pharaoh was regarded as a god in Egypt. If you're such a mighty god, how come you can't interpret your own dream? Who gave you this dream if, if you're such a mighty god, right? But there's no one there that can interpret them. Pharaoh's dream was actually a revelation from God. We know that. Pharaoh received it, but he couldn't understand it. It's a lot like a person who reads the Bible, maybe an unbeliever that reads the Bible. They need help understanding. I read it. I know I've got this message from God, but I've got no idea what this means. To the unbeliever, God's word, whether that's through the dream to Pharaoh or whether that's the written word that we have today, is still a mystery to understand. And they need one of God's people to come alongside and explain it to them. And that's exactly what we're going to see in Joseph. Verse 9, the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. Or as the New King James puts it, I remember my faults today. Oh yeah, there was something I was supposed to tell you and I totally forgot. By the way, I know exactly what that feels like. <laughs> I am the absent-minded professor and I'm sorry for that. The butler finally remembered Joseph and he confessed about the wrong he'd done against him. Then he recommends Joseph to Pharaoh as a man who has the power to interpret dreams. Verse 10, when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and he put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. And a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And just as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. 
Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Notice before going into Pharaoh, Joseph makes himself presentable. He's about to address the king after all, right? So he understands proper protocol. He doesn't come as a slovenly slob. But the, his grooming is also kind of a way of norming with the Egyptian culture as much as possible so as not to unnecessarily offend. Listen, folks, the gospel is offensive. We don't have to be unnecessarily offensive. The gospel itself is. Pharaoh and all the high-status Egyptians of his court would have been clean-shaven. That was the custom of their day. They would have been wearing clean clothing, which, by the way, at that point in time was something of a rarity. Remember that during the times we think God isn't doing anything, he's at work. He's at work doing the most important thing to him. He's transforming us into the image of Christ. Joseph probably couldn't feel that. He probably had no idea. He, you know, the day he woke up, and that day seemed like every other day before it. I'm still in this prison. And by the end of the day, he is the second highest man in all of Egypt. You do not know when that day will come, but I can promise you this, it will not come until you are well prepared for it. God will prepare you. And he was preparing Joseph. He's doing the most important work to him, that is transforming us into the image of Christ. That's what he was doing with Joseph all those years. And by the way, it's that very transformation that makes us fit for service in his kingdom. It is not enough just to know God's word. Just knowing God's word does not make you fit for service in his kingdom. The question is, do you live that out? Well, I've learned a lot. Fantastic. Has it changed your life? Because if not, just take your place in line with the other Pharisees. If you desire to do greater work in God's kingdom, let me tell you this. You better prepare yourself then for greater affliction... Greater change, greater trial, and greater transformation. If you are stubborn and unwilling to change, you, have, you will go no further. You've grown as far as you can grow, and you've gone as far as you can go. We all love the words of Romans 8.28. We all know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. Which is good. But sometimes we conveniently forget the next verse. For those he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined. What did he predestine them to? To be conformed to the image of his son. How does he conform us to the image of his son? The fires of affliction. Trials. Let's go on. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Verse 15, I've had a dream and there's no one that can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph immediately answers. Look what he says. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it's not me, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Right up front, we see Joseph is now a humble man. He is rightly deflecting praise back to the only one that deserves it, that is God. 
What happened to the self-glorying 17-year-old that was bragging to his brothers about how God was going to exalt him? Well, that arrogant kid had been burned away in the furnace of affliction. That arrogant, immature, entitled, self-promoting young man had undergone more than a decade of God's refinement. And God had turned him through that into a humble, wise, God-fearing man capable of ruling a great people. The refiner's furnace had done its job. Don't hate the refiner's furnace. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Verse 17, Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. And seven other cows came up after them, poor and ugly and thin, such that I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they'd eaten them, no one would have known that they'd eaten them because they were still ugly, as ugly as the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dreams seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one that could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Imagine the power dynamic going here. Joseph doesn't even pretend to think that Pharaoh is a god. God has revealed to you what he's about to do. Just wait. It gets better. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I've told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all of the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God. Okay, catch that little piece in your mind. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. What does that mean? Joseph is telling Pharaoh, God has decided to do this thing, period, full stop. You can't do anything about it. That's kind of a slap in the face to a guy that's claiming to be God. You're not God. God is God. And he's fixed that this thing will happen. Which means what? Well, it means no amount of repenting in sackcloth and ashes, no amount of crying and begging is going to make him relent. He has decided this is what he's going to do. You have one choice and one choice only, and that is to prepare. I should have called this message, When a Prepper Becomes the King. You'd better prepare. He goes on to say, Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man. Set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. It was customary for Pharaoh to take 10% of the grain in Egypt as a tax. 
So what Joseph is suggesting here is tantamount to doubling the grain taxes over the next seven years in preparation of the famine. Joseph, God's man, has decided, hey, Pharaoh, what you need to do is double the taxes. Ron Paul and Ron Swanson would not be pleased. I'm sure I wouldn't have been either. 35, let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food should be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. Just a little point I want you to think about. Egypt is the land of Joseph's affliction. It's a land of pagan idolatry. Why does Joseph care about Egypt perishing? He's telling him, you need to do this so that Egypt doesn't perish. Some of us, if we were in that same um, instance, if we were in that same situation, would be like, yep, God is giving you uh, a dream. He has shown you what's happened in the future, but I'm not going to tell you because I want you to perish. Like Jonah. Why does Joseph care? Because God does. And Joseph is God's faithful servant. But also, God is going to execute another rescue plan. He's not just going to save Egypt. He's going to save his people through the saving of Egypt. He has another rescue plan for the saving of his people from starvation and destruction. God is going to use the plenty of the land of Egypt to save his own people from starving. I don't know if you've thought about that, but if, if Egypt doesn't gather the grain, what exactly, pray tell, do you think God's people are going to eat at year three, four, and five in this famine? God is literally going to use the grain of this pagan nation to rescue his people through a famine. You're telling me God can use a wicked, idolatrous nation to rescue his own people? Better believe it. 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all the people shall order themselves as you command. Only in regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in the second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh. Without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. There's so much that I want to pull out of this, but I'm, I'm going to wait till next time to fully develop some of this. But I want you to think about this. What is it that saved this land from destruction? Well, there was a man faithful to God in this authority position. Hey, do you think it's okay for Christians to be involved in politics? I've, I've had that question a lot. Sometimes I'm unnecessarily sarcastic. It's one of my to toxic traits, right? No, no, I, I think politics is one of those areas that Jesus doesn't rule over. Right? No, he's the king of everything except for that. Yes, of course. 
And the, the Bible very clearly tells us that when righteous people, people who know the Lord and are walking according to his, his ways, are in positions of influence, power, authority, etc., it is much better for those people. Yes, it is much better to have a judge who knows the Lord, who fears the Lord, who is impartial, rather than one who loves taking bribes. Yes, it is much better to have a congressman who knows the Lord, who fears the Lord, rather than one taking millions of dollars from lobbyists, which is to say professional bribers, and perverting the laws because of it. Yes. 45, Pharaoh called Joseph's name, I'm going to get this wrong, by the way, Zaphonath Paneah. That's as, as good as I can do. <clears throat> and he gave him in marriage, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. We, we don't know the, the city by the name of On now. It's typically called Heliopolis, Heliopolis the son of this name given to Joseph, by the way, it literally means God speaks and he lives. Pretty good name. It's an acknowledgement of God speaking to Pharaoh through the dreams and then speaking his word through Joseph and preserving Egypt. By the way, that same phrase can also mean or be translated as the saving one or the savior of the world. The foreshadowing here is un unmistakable. Why the marriage? The marriage... To Asenath, cements Joseph as a powerful figure in Egyptian politics. The priest of On was the most eminent of all the priests in Egypt. He ruled over the worship of Ra, the sun god, from his home in Heliopolis. So marriage to his daughter was a powerful political move. By arranging this marriage, Pharaoh had, in effect, made Joseph's promotion permanent and irrevocable. He's now cemented to Pharaoh and the power brokers of Egyptian politics. Probably a shrewd move on Pharaoh's part because Pharaoh has just taken an outsider and made him the second in command. Do you think there would have been powerful political figures that were upset with that? Oh, yeah. Do you think they might have thought, maybe we just need to stab this guy in the back and get rid of him someday? Sure. So Pharaoh does a little end around and says, you're going to marry the high priest's daughter. So if you're killed, lots of people will be looking for the people who try to kill you. Again, God is using pagan people to keep Joseph safe. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. 30 years old, by the way, would be the prescribed age for being able to serve as a priest in Numbers 4. That was why a roughly 20-year-old Jeremiah would later protest to God that he was unable to carry. I can't carry your message, God. I'm just a child. Well, even in that day, 30 years old, 30 years old isn't a child. But it's pretty young to have that kind of authority. But God's refining process had prepared him for such a monumental task, even at that young age. 47, during the plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great measure, like the sands of the seas, until he ceased to measure it because it could not be measured. Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Think about that. 
If he would have been living in evangelical America today, you know what he'd have had? He'd have had somebody telling him this nonsense. Look at what's coming. There's a famine coming. This place is going to be terrible. You can't bring children into a world like that. That's just one more mouth to feed and there's a famine coming. I know I love to crack at dispensationalism. I'm sorry for that. How do you think this society will get better by having less salt and light in it? You think that's what will change it? That's going to make it better for people, is it? How about we just trust the Lord? How about that? How about we have children and we teach them the fear and admonition of the Lord? How about that? How about we trust that we're going to do everything we can do and God is going to watch out for his people, even in bad times? Maybe that would be good for salt and light in the kingdom of God. 51, Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. He is still hurting and reeling from what happened to him in his father's house. I'd love to get into that more. We'll do it next time. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Why was there bread in Egypt? Because there was a man who feared the Lord, doing what he was supposed to do. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do that. Remember that he says that. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. I want to give you a couple of quotes before we end. Matthew Henry says this, There's a famine of the bread of life throughout the whole earth. Therefore, go to Jesus, and what he tells you to do, do it. Attend to his voice. Apply yourself to him. He will open his treasures and satisfy with goodness the hungry soul of every age and every nation. Without money and even without price. But those who slight this provision will starve, and his enemies will indeed be destroyed. John Gill says, Just as Joseph had all the stores of grain under his care, and the needy were told to go to him for it, so too Christ has all the treasures of grace in his hand, and in his hand alone. All those that are sensible of their need of it are directed to go to him for it. It's from him that all nations and countries will receive grace for grace and have all of their supplies and spiritual sustenance and nourishment met. Joseph was a figure, a type of Christ. He's the one with the keys to the bread. And those that don't go to him will starve and die. And friends, it's no different today. Jesus Christ is the one that you must flee to. He's the one in whom we find the bread of life. 
Let's pray. Lord, remind us that when we're in the fire, it's because you're refining us so that we might be more like Christ. Remind us today, even when we don't perceive it or feel it, you're there. You're still at work. You're at work in us to will and do to your good pleasure. You're at work in your people. Remind us that it's you that's the rescuer of sinners. It's you who we must seek for our daily bread. It's you and you alone who's able to rescue us who are perishing. Father, we ask that if there's anyone here that does not know the Lord today, Lord, you would grab their heart. You would draw them to you. You would open their blinded eyes that they might see that you and you alone have the key of life. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for drawing us, Lord, for pulling us out of darkness, for rescuing us. And we ask you would equip us, Lord, to be able to take part in that very ministry. We thank you for it today, Lord. We ask you be with your people. Let us be more like you. Thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.